You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabal, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. And Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away, and fled, and went to Beer, and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the man of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him, 
And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives, so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he arose again against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Solomon he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. 
Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 706 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 6th, 2023, and that was a reading of Judges chapter 9, where we see a certain Abimelech, son of Gideon, deciding that there can only be one, and he is going to be the one who will be king over Israel for a short period. Three years is not all that long, really, in the grand scheme of things. It's not a long reign, really. But what does he do? He conspires with his mother's relatives. Remember, his mother was a servant of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. His mother was a concubine, more to the point. And he talks with his mother's relatives and conspires with them to kill, that is to murder, all of his brothers except for one. And the one who does not get killed prophesies against both Abimelech and those who helped him. And as it comes to pass, there's a lot of treachery, just like Abimelech betrayed his brothers. So also, it's fair to say he got what he dished out. What he sowed is also what he reaped. Him and those who conspired, they all turned on one another. And that's exactly what you should expect. You know, as we think about what's going on in the macro, socially, politically, it can be easy to wonder along with the psalmist and with Solomon later on when he writes in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, why do the wicked prosper? Why? How long are the wicked going to be allowed to prosper? And isn't this a vanity of vanities that the wicked through their wickedness sometimes prolong their lives and sometimes the righteous by their righteousness come to a premature end And it seems unfair. It seems like it's just totally wrong. But don't envy the wicked. Actually, you should pity them, warn them, and try to protect those who are being targeted by them. But pity them, actually, in comparison to their temporary gains, which have to be temporary because they will not persist. They're going to blow away like chaff. In comparison to the temporary gains, the ultimate judgment that they bringing on themselves is much, much worse than the temporary success is good. Don't be jealous of them. It's not going to last. In the case of Abimelech, it really doesn't. And when it comes to an end, it's rather an anticlimactic death that Abimelech dies. He has a millstone dropped on his head from a tower. He's just on the warpath going after anybody who opposed him or stood up to him or is in his way. And a woman drops a millstone on his head. And he apparently knows it was a woman because he calls to a servant of his to kill him, lest it be said of him that he was killed by a woman. Now, what's curious about that as well is this is not the first time in the book of Judges that we've had a woman dispatching 
a bad man. Abimelech is a bad man. But earlier in the book of Judges, we saw a woman named Jael who killed a general of the enemy army by driving a tent peg through his head. And that was not a particularly good death for him. It really wasn't. I mean, if you're going to die anyways, and you pride yourself on being this great warrior, this great leader of men, that's not exactly the way you want to go. So also in the case of Abimelech, that was not exactly the end he was hoping for or looking for. But then that's just like the Bible. The Bible is not nearly so politically correct as we are, unfortunately, in our day. And some of us maybe mourn that fact. I, for one, am glad for that fact because this is just presented as what it is. Now, don't read too much into it that Abimelech is this misogynist. He's a sexist. He won't even die honorably. A woman drops a millstone on his head and his final act of calumny is to insult women everywhere. That's not the point. But the point is that the biblical text gives us this detail and does not spare us our modern sensibilities, spare our precious feelings by giving us some kind of a trigger warning. No, it's just, this is what happened. Presented, warts and all, this is who Abimelech was, this is what he did, this is the end that he came to, and you should take from that, even if it doesn't appear obvious that God's hand is bringing these just desserts to him and to the others who conspired with him. You should understand that this is how God has so ordered the universe. And also, this is part of the context of Israel. What has happened prior, you should understand, leads to these kinds of things happening in Israel. And what will come after is coming in the context of these things happening right here and right now. But notice, 70 brothers, all but one, killed. And it's a brutal thing. And you just think, wow, no love lost there. You talk about dysfunctional families. Here's a man who decides to kill all of his brothers. That's a lot of brothers. He kills them all because he's so filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. And what's interesting to me about Abimelech is he's the only one to this point, before we get to chapter nine of the book of Judges, he's the only one who is named of Gideon's 70 sons, except a certain Jotham, who is the youngest of the sons of Gideon. And it's that Jotham who is able to slip away and he's lost in the shuffle, but then he makes a stand and he prophesies against his brother. And the prophecy is pretty sobering, pretty rough stuff. He describes him basically as a bramble and tells a story of the trees saying to various kinds of trees, an olive tree, a fig tree, for instance, rain over us, even to a vine, rain over us. And each one in turn says, nope, nope, nope. I'm pretty content with what I've got going on. And then lastly is a bramble and the bramble is indicative of Abimelech. So he's not a man of good character. He's not some inspiring sort. He's a thug. He's a brutal mobster thug. And what's interesting is in reading Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, a 
17th century Scots Presbyterian, he talks a little bit about Abimelech, and he poses the question, if the divine right of kings means that anybody who becomes a king is invariably granted this blank check, and they can do whatever they want, and you don't dare question, is Abimelech considered the first king legitimately over Israel, or is he considered an illegitimate king because of how he took power? He seized power, and that was not legitimate. Do we consider Abimelech the first king of Israel, or is the first king properly of Israel considered to be Saul? Even if the kingdom was taken away from him by God, Saul is considered to be the first king over Israel. And that's food for thought. When we relate to power and authority, there are legitimate ways to come to power, and there are not legitimate ways And if it were all the same, if it were all just whoever gets the power, we must know they're the one who God wanted to have this power and wants to have continue on in this position. If that's what it is, then it's a very curious thing that the kingdom is taken away from Saul later on, and also that Abimelech's rule and reign comes to such a brutal and ignominious end here. But of course, that's what it is. It's not all just... Whoever gets to claim that title at some point is legitimately in that role. And don't you dare criticize or dissent. Don't you dare rebuke. Don't you dare tell them that they're in the wrong. It's not that. And it's good for us to appreciate and grasp the fact that that's not what we find in the biblical text. God raises up kings and then he also brings them low as it seems good to him as they are working to accomplish his purposes, sometimes despite themselves, very often despite themselves, regardless of their personal character and integrity. But then sometimes when they become very wicked, in fact, always when they become very wicked, God brings them low and accounts them as nothing and uses people, men and women sometimes, to remove them. And so also in our time, in our context, let's not forget that it is not all just whoever has the title, you grant some kind of a blank check to because God doesn't do that. Nor does God always himself raise up by himself and bring low by himself without any human engagement, those he wants to move in and out of positions of power and authority. This is very pertinent to where we find ourselves today in the United States that we need to obtain, we need to acquire sound political theology, and very many of us have no idea where to start. Start with case studies like Abimelech. The kingship was offered to his father. His father declined and said, I will not be king. My son will not be king. My grandson will not be king over you. And yet, Here was Abimelech saying, on second thought, I'll be king. I will be your king, but we're going to have to remove all of my brothers. And by remove, what I mean is murder them all. So he rises to power by murdering all of his brothers. If that is not disqualifying, then I don't know what is. It's a heinous thing, and he deserves every bit of the ignominious end that he reaches. In other news... It's been announced who the moderators for the second Republican primary debate will be. 
They are going to be Stuart Varney and Dana Perino of Fox News, alongside Ilya Calderon of Univision. That second debate, that next debate, will take place on September 27th at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, and will be broadcast again on Fox, Fox Business this time, and Univision. The exact time has yet to be announced, but what's curious to me is the inclusion of a Univision talent. Here we have Univision being Spanish language news. Miss Calderon, who started her journalism career as a local anchor in Colombia, is co-anchor of Noticiero Univision, highest rated Spanish language network newscast in the United States, according to the reporting from Bill Pan. It's a curious thing, but then this has come to be a pretty typical thing, a pretty common thing that as the population of the United States includes more and more Hispanic Americans, more and more who speak Spanish as their primary language, their more comfortable mother tongue, and they have a very Hispanic culture to emphasize that the Republicans and the Democrats want the Hispanic vote, they are going to try to provide representation. And they're going to include familiar faces just like they are for more of a conventional, traditional American audience, provide familiar faces, names, and voices that we are thought to trust. They're also going to do the same thing or a very similar thing with regards to those who are deemed credible or familiar on the Hispanic side of our national culture. Increasingly, the Hispanic American population makes up a sizable share of our national demographic. And these Republicans who want the nomination, they want to be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election, they need, it is said, to appeal to Hispanic voters. And I think, and I want to take this opportunity to say as much, I think that one big opportunity for Republicans and for conservatives is to appeal to the fact that a lot of Hispanics came to the United States in the first place in recent decades or even prior to, if they are from the American Southwest and they grew up in what formerly had been Mexican territory but was taken and absorbed into the United States prior to the Civil War back in the mid-19th century. Either way, typically, culturally, They tend to believe that men are men and women are women. They tend to believe that children are a blessing. They tend to be strong proponents of tight-knit extended families, large and tight-knit extended families. And quite honestly, if we could emphasize that that is valued, that's respected, that's honored, and maybe, I don't know, they could teach the mainstream of American culture a thing or two, about rediscovering the importance of masculinity for men, femininity for women, a high value on children and the extended family, maybe just maybe they could make the conservative movement far more comprehensively conservative. 
they could make the Republican Party far more impactful in a cultural sense and far more comprehensive. I say comprehensive because for those who have come to America in recent decades from Latin America, because they, the men in particular, wanted to provide for their families, they wanted to protect their families, for those Hispanic Americans to see what is happening economically right now as being a direct threat to the original reasons that they or their fathers came here and brought them here has to be very concerning. And what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to go back to Mexico, go back to Colombia, go back to South America, Central America? If this country falls apart and is no longer economically viable, is no longer a safe place to raise a family, are they supposed to go back? Well, I've talked with some Hispanic Americans here in the U.S., who do stay in contact with family in Mexico, for instance. And they tell me when they go back to Mexico to visit, some are friendly, some are welcoming, but there are plenty who are rather cold-shouldered. Ah, you're coming back from America. You look down on all of us. You think you're better than us. Fine, whatever. We don't need you. I say if the country you or your parents or your grandparents came to America, came to the United States from, doesn't think that they need you anymore, but you believe that a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and that children are a blessing from the Lord. If you want this country to be a place of economic opportunity and stability and safety for our families, for us to raise children and work and save and earn and make homes for ourselves, we need you. I think in talking with some Hispanic Americans here in Colorado, one thing I've been really struck by is that a lot of their parents, grandparents, so on and so forth, back generations, have been voting Democrat for generations because the Democrats were willing to afford them an opportunity, as they saw it, to provide for their families, protect their families. If the Democrats have given up on America being a place where you can provide for and protect your family. We need to not give up on that. And for that matter too, there's increasingly a dilemma for Hispanic Americans because on the one hand, a lot of them are voting Democrat out of a kind of filial piety. I want to show honor and respect to my parents and my grandparents who voted Democrat. And so I'm going to vote Democrat. I am a Democrat like my father before me essentially. But then to the older Hispanic Americans, are you going to have grandchildren if you don't right now? Are you going to have great-grandchildren if you don't right now? With the way that the Democrats are carrying on, the way that they demand your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren be educated, trying to talk young people into foregoing economic opportunity, not getting married, not having children, changing their gender, you can't vote for that in good conscience. I know you can't, and you shouldn't. But on the flip side, for us who are Western and Northern European immigrants from maybe hundreds of years ago to the United States, or in my case, on my mother's mother's side, I can say going back to even before the war for independence, we need to be realistic here and realize that there are a lot of our countrymen who 
say, it's really not that big of a deal. There's no helping. There's no stopping. Radical egalitarianism and androgyny, there's no stopping this drive to normalize homosexuality and transgenderism. This country's toast. There are a lot of us that need to snap out of it already and stop it. Stop saying that this is just what it is and that this is okay. And for that matter too, if we're going to give up and throw in the towel, I can't believe that it's not worth reaching out, extending a welcoming hand, if we haven't already, to Hispanic Americans and just asking this, asking this one simple thing of them, please don't help to implement socialism here when in all probability you or your parents' generation or your grandparents' generation came here to this country to get away from socialism. Don't help to implement arbitrary totalitarianism here in the U.S. when in all probability that's what wrecked economic opportunity and social cohesion where your ancestors came here to America from. Please don't do that. Please understand where conservatives have been coming from for a few generations now, at least. When we were concerned about illegal immigration, at least from my way of looking at it, it wasn't personal against Hispanic Americans, but there was a genuine concern that our country is less safe, our country is less economically profitable for our children, for our grandchildren, if we say we have no control over our border. And shouldn't we have control over our border? What happens when MS-13 comes pouring across the border, bringing drugs, engaging in human trafficking, bringing the most brutal criminal violence, not just to our country generally, but even to your communities, isn't it about time that we agree that we should secure our southern border, that we should have checks and balances, we should have a separation of powers between the three branches of government? Isn't it about time you stopped voting Democrat? For that matter, isn't it about time that you messaged to Republicans that if they want your vote, if they need your vote, they're going to need to be more conservative on some of these family values than they have been flirting with and teasing and considering being and increasingly are deciding to be. If there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats, then I think it's whatever. Then it doesn't really matter who you vote for, who I vote for because it's all just the same, right? But of course, like I was saying with regards to Abimelech, there are legitimate ways to come to a position of power and authority, and there are illegitimate. To flatter sin and folly is not a legitimate way to come to a position of power. It's not. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says that the governing authority is a servant of God, a minister of God, to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. How can that minister of God do that if the way that they get into a position of power or they get to claim that they have this position of authority is by doing what is evil? And some will say, well, that's everybody who has governing authority. That's just the nature of government. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that's correct. I think that's one of the lies that dirty, dishonest, unscrupulous people have told us is that that's always what it is. No, no, that can't be so. That's not what I read in my Bible. It is not always how someone comes into a position of authority. 
What I would love to see is those who want to reward what is good coming to a position of power and authority in this country because they do what is good. And we recognize that and we ourselves reward those who do what is good with our vote, with our encouragement, with our support, and with a degree of loyalty. But the Democrats are not doing what is good and they don't deserve anyone's loyalty. In fact, warn them, pity them, because they have sown quite a lot of sin and folly and they will reap what they sow. We should not go with them and we should not go along with them and we should not give cover for them and we shouldn't draw a moral equivalence as though it's all the same. It really doesn't matter. It does matter. Speaking of the Republican primaries though, I want to play for you some audio from a embedded tweet shared over at Not The Bee, August 26th by Edward Teach, some video that accompanies this audio in the version I'm looking at right now on my screen is from Matt Kim on Twitter. And the question is, and I quote, should we trust Vivek? Lots of coincidences here. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Hear it for yourself. And then I have some thoughts. Vivek Ramaswamy. Should you trust him? Some of you won't like this, but hear me out. He seems to be everywhere. Clips of him giving it to the man and calling out the establishment all over social media. Skyrockets from unknown to top of the Republican polls. And I understand why. He says what we all want to hear. End the war, secure the border, drain the swamp, unity, freedom, truth. Which outlets are considered untrustworthy propaganda media? MSNBC, Business Insider, AP, Forbes, The New York Times, The New Yorker, Huffington Post, Axios, Political, just to name a few. The mouthpiece of the establishment. Then why are they all so supportive of Vivek? Doesn't make sense. How is he considered anti-establishment when he's supported by the establishment? If you or I were to say some of the anti-woke things he says, we would be shadow banned. But somehow, he's trending on every single major social media platform. Hmm. Prior to politics, he was a hedge fund manager. His claim to fame was a pharmaceutical startup company called Royvent. In the nine years it's been in business, it has never been profitable or delivered a working product. Although Royvent continues to fail their clinical trials, they were able to find investors and raise money making Vivek an extremely wealthy entrepreneur. Good at convincing people to invest. Poor at delivering product and execution. Not a good sign. So what about the money? The media highlights that Vivek has invested over $10 million of his own money to fund his campaign, an honorable feat. Vivek announced his run for presidency in February 2023. How long do you think it takes to make that decision and execute a plan? Six, eight months? July 2022, the value of Rovent stock is just over $3 per share. On February 21st, 2023, Vivek announces his run for presidency, and on February 22, he sells 4 million shares for approximately $32 million at nearly $8 per share, well over $15 million in profit in six months prior to him announcing presidency. Good for him, right? Make that money. Company is losing over $1 billion per year, but he got paid. Smart guy. But anytime things are just so coincidental, I'm forced to keep digging. 
Why did the stock price of an unprofitable, failing company rise over 100%? How does it go from an all-time low to nearly its all-time high? Institutional money. You remember when Vivek said the financial investment giants like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard represent arguably the most powerful cartel in human history? Well, guess who's on the list of institutional investment giants that started giving his company money one year ago? You want to guess? BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. All three have added to their positions in the last quarter, and Roviant, which Vivek still owns 7% share in, is now up over 300% in the last year, making it worth close to $1 billion. During the Republican primary debate, Vivek vowed to end the teachers' union. Guess who is also on this list of investors? California State Teachers Retirement System. Look, his intentions may be pure, and this is all a coincidence. Maybe there is a great explanation. However, I am not a financial analyst nor investigative reporter but I was able to find all this out in a couple hours of sifting through publicly available data. Why is his connection to George Soros via scholarship and his involvement in the Ohio COVID-19 response team scrubbed from Wikipedia? In 2021, he was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Two years later, after using that title to raise investments for his company, he sued the WEF to remove his name from the list. Three months after that, he was able to settle with Klaus Schwab's WEF and receive a formal letter of apology. How do you sue what many may consider evil, the World Economic Forum, and win and get an apology letter in three months? He's either that good or, I don't know. Any real journalist or news outlet could have easily found out all this info, but they didn't. Real question is, why? Okay, all right. Now, I'm going to answer his question. Matt Kim, you ask, why? I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It is food for thought. It is certainly worth considering. But then the bigger point I want to make with sharing this clip with you is not actually that we should trust or we shouldn't trust Vivek. I'm not here to either prove or disprove the questions that are being asked I don't know whether these are credible questions. I don't know whether these are ridiculous speculations. I don't know. But just let it sink in for a moment how low the trust is that we have in our institutional corporate news media. We don't actually expect to get these kinds of facts. If these facts were true, we would not expect our mainstream corporate news media to report on it. And I think that's very unfortunate. I also further would draw you back to Judges chapter 9 and point out that Abimelech, in his bid for power, did what? What is it that Abimelech, son of Gideon, also called Jerubbabel, where is it that he went? Who did he talk with? What was he about? What was he doing prior to making his power moves to become king over Israel? Illegitimately, I might add. What was he doing? He was plotting and scheming with his mother's people to say, wouldn't it be better if I ruled over you? Wouldn't that be better? And what's in it for them? What's in it for them is they get to attach themselves, ingratiate themselves towards someone who's going to get things done and who's going to let them also run a racket. What we have in Judges chapter 9 
is one of many instances in the book of Judges and in the Bible more broadly, one of many instances of bad actions, sinful behavior, evil deeds being done. But there's a particular kind of misbehavior and doing what is evil that we find in Judges 9, and it is conspiring. You have Abimelech conspiring with people who are going to help him to get into a position of power. And I just want to say a quick word about the way that we all too often in polite society in the United States dismiss all such talk. We say, oh, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. And you know what? Don't spread a false report. That's wicked. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's wicked. But also, let's not just dismiss out of hand that people do conspire. Sometimes when it looks like someone has been conspiring, it's just a coincidence. It really is. Or someone else is trying to smear them and you should not be a party to that. But other times, it looks like somebody has been conspiring to do what is evil because guess what? They've been conspiring to do what is evil. And we see that presented in Judges chapter 9. We have Abimelech conspiring behind the scenes to go after his own brothers and to kill almost all of them with the exception of his youngest brother. He has them all killed with help. That help comes to him through conspiracy. That's all conspiracy is, is conspiring. What is conspiring? Oxford languages tells me it comes from late Middle English, from Old French, conspirer, from Latin, conspirer, agree, or plot, from con, which means together, together with, plus spirer, which means breathe. So in other words, to conspire is to breathe together. That is, you're whispering together. You're secretly planning and agreeing together that you're going to do something which you don't want everybody knowing. Why don't you want everybody knowing? Because if they knew you were going to do that, if they knew you were planning to do that, they would try to stop you because it's not a good thing for you to be doing. You would be in trouble. If we see and we know that people do bad things, don't be so quick to dismiss that they did those bad things intentionally with planning with people who were willing to help them in exchange for a kickback in return for favors. Again, that doesn't mean Vivek Ramaswamy is a bad guy, but he's not necessarily a good guy just because he's saying a lot of things that sound really great and because he's young and has a winning smile. It's good for us to do the digging and to think more deeply and to not have a naive assumption about the inherent goodness of people. Don't assume that everybody is equally bad and it's all the same. That's not careful. That's not wise. Also, don't assume that everybody is good and we all just maybe talk past each other sometimes. No, our sinful nature is something to contend with. Some people give full expression to their sinful nature and you don't want to entrust yourself to those kinds of people, and you should know that. Speaking of conspiring, it does seem to be the general consensus, actually across the political spectrum, that the prosecutions of former President Donald Trump are politically motivated. They are not actually expressly concerned, narrowly concerned with the rule of law. They're specifically interested in derailing his attempt to be reelected president of the United States in 2024. And 
actually clarifying something that is claimed by Mike Kim in the previous segment where I played that audio clip for you. Vivek is not at the top of the polls. Now, he's doing okay. He's doing respectably well. But Trump is pretty decidedly at the top. He is doing, by a long shot, much better in some cases, in some polls, depending on who's doing the asking, he's doing better than the rest of the field combined. But here's an interesting bit of reporting from Ryan Saavedra over at thedailywire.com. Trump fundraising numbers released after mugshot. Now, this is from August 26th. I've had a little bit of a backlog growing of stories, so bear that in mind. I didn't cover it the very day that it came out, but that's maybe for the best because I've had several days to think about it. But here is what Saavedra reports for The Daily Wire. Citing Politico, the campaign's fundraising was powered largely by merchandise sales that featured the former president's mugshot. His campaign had threatened to, quote, come after anyone who used the image to raise money, even though the photo is public domain. The report said that in the first 24 hours after the mugshot's release, the campaign had raised $4.18 million, a sum similar to what Trump raised after his first indictment and has since hit $7.1 million. The funds come as recent questions had swirled about the financial situation of Trump's political operation after recent campaign finance reports showed that his PAC and aligned PACs have burned through tens of millions of dollars in legal fees to defend the 77-year-old former president in four separate criminal cases. After the first indictment by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office earlier this year, the Trump campaign raised $12 million over the following week after the second indictment by special counsel Jack Smith from his criminal investigation into Trump's retention of classified documents. After leaving office, the campaign raised approximately $6.6 million in the week that followed. However, after the third indictment was announced in Smith's criminal investigation into Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, the Trump campaign has not released fundraising numbers after nearly a full month. The campaign also did not release fundraising numbers after the fourth indictment two weeks ago. Now, what does all that mean? I think, in part, that this means there's a certain weariness, and also it'll be interesting to see after the first Republican primary debate and then later this month, a second, it'll be interesting to see as more Americans realize that there are some other options besides former President Trump, will they continue donating in a big way to Trump? Or will they say, you know what, I'm just kind of over all of this drama and yeah, moving on does sound good. Now, something to keep in mind here, having just talked through the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, one of the things that is said at the end of Judges chapter 8 is that Israel did not honor the memory of Gideon by taking care of his family after he passed on. And in part, what happened as a result of that is that all of his sons were murdered brutally by their brother Abimelech with the help of the men of Shechem. But what is the flavor of that comment in the book of Judges? Does it reflect well on Israel? Is it neutral? Or is this an indictment on the nation of Israel that they showed so little appreciation for everything Gideon had done in being, yes, used of God? And no, it wasn't Gideon first and foremost or primarily who delivered Israel, but 
Yes, humanly speaking, he was used of God. God chose to use him to deliver Israel. It's not a positive thing. It's not a high point in the history of Israel that they just completely forgot about his wives and his children and carried on as if nothing had happened, as if they weren't important people. It's not in Judges chapter 9 when Abimelech kills all of his brothers except for the youngest. It's not exactly a high point in Israel's history that this all happens. In fact, there are three years in which Abimelech is ruling and reigning. And are those three years a good time in Israel? Or does the nation, in some sense, come under judgment by virtue of Abimelech ruling and reigning? Well, it seems to me pretty obvious, pretty clear that the nation is under judgment and that this is a very demoralizing thing. We should take note of two things being true at the same time. The one thing is what's happening to former President Donald Trump is awful and terrible and it's unjust and it's dangerous. This is a dangerous precedent that they are prosecuting the leading contender for the Republican nomination during an important election cycle. It's wrong what's happening to Trump and his family and his associates. It's an injustice and it's a dangerous precedent. If we allow it to stand, it will end up setting the rest of us in this country on a very bad path where we also will have them going after us and our families and our associates if we are conservative, if we would object to the things that they're doing and the things that they're saying on the radical left. But that is true, that it's an awful thing that's happening to Trump and more so that we should object and we should be opposed to this being done to Trump on the one hand, and at the same time, on the other hand, that that does not necessarily mean he is the best pick to be president in 2024. I maintain Ron DeSantis would be a better pick. And despite the ugliness between Trump and DeSantis, I see no merit in how Trump has related to Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. And yes, I understand he's got something of a deer in headlights look on his face at times, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe we need to be a little less superficial and look at the record, look at the scoreboard He did very well, has done very well in the state of Florida. We want that kind of successful track record, that kind of character, that strong record for the rest of the country. And for that matter too, I think that would stem the tide of a lot of these politically motivated prosecutions and the weaponization of the federal government, federal bureaucracies against American citizens that we're seeing run roughshod over our due process, and our political order in the past several years. So it's true that we should object strenuously to what is being done to former President Donald Trump. We should oppose it. We should stand up against it. I would say we should argue against it strongly, and we should demand that this not be the way of things. But on the other hand, too, at the same time, not instead of, but in addition to, I think it's acceptable to say, It would be very welcome for us to move on from the Trump, Biden, baby boomers forever, string of presidencies, string of administrations, move on to a younger generation, hopefully, I hope, one that 
wants to be competent, wants to do the effective things that are also principled. Not pragmatic or principled, but pragmatic and principled and viewing operating from principles that are sound as the most pragmatic thing you could possibly do. The thing that will be the most successful. One of the worst things that's happened in modern American political history, national history, is that we have come to view what is pragmatic as something of an opposite of what is principled. And that just goes to show, once again, how far afield our understanding of how things are done, how we do business, how politics is engaged in, how the news comes to us and what we should make of it, how we should talk about it, how we should treat with one another, all of the above, what we have come to accept as just what it is, this is how it is, this is how things are done, has become very godless and very immoral and very bad, very corrupt. It would be very good for us to see that the principled thing, doing the principled thing, doing the right thing, the moral and righteous thing, is actually also doing the most practical thing. It's also doing the most pragmatic thing in the world, particularly if God is pleased by our doing the right thing and saying the true thing and appreciating what is beautiful about who we used to be as a country and who I hope, Lord willing, we can humble ourselves and be again. Alternatively, if we won't, consider just one more story from The Daily Wire. This one by Daniel Chaitin, August 28th, how Trump's trial schedule lines up with the 2024 election calendar. It's interesting to see a tweet embedded here from Charlie Kirk, also from August 28th. March 5th, we see primaries for the Republicans in Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. March 4th is the day before. March 5th is the day when we have all of these Republican primaries in all of these important states. March 5th is an important day in the run-up to the 2024 election. March 4th is the trial date that Judge Chutkin has set. And as Charlie Kirk says, total coincidence. What an absolute farce. If we normalize it, if we shrug about it, if we say, oh, well, he should have thought of that before he whacked the hornet's nest, woe to us. Woe to us. It's a wrong, evil, corrupt thing that's being done to former President Donald Trump. I would prefer Ron DeSantis be the nominee, but I would also strongly object to it becoming the way that these things are done, that the former president, Donald Trump, who has done a great deal of good for this country, particularly appointing conservative Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe versus Wade, who may just, if we have a Republican in the White House again, who's willing to uphold the rule of law and stop already with the weaponization of the federal government, unelected bureaucrats, may just protect Supreme Court justices when they're considering what cases to take up and to hear and to rule on. Keep in mind that the Supreme Court justices, when the memo was leaked, that they were looking at overturning Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court justices on the Republican side of things, on the conservative side of things, in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, 
were threatened with assassination and radical leftists showed up in their neighborhoods, showed up at their homes to threaten them and their families. It doesn't stop with Donald Trump. If we shrug about it, if we say, ah, I'm just so tired of the whole thing. You think you're tired now. Let this continue on without objection and you will look back on how tired you are right now longingly. You will think of how things are right now as having been a relatively restful time in your life. We have to insist that the weaponization of our government against conservatives, against Republicans, against Christians, stop because it is not rewarding what is good and it is not punishing what is evil. It's thuggish and actually itself rather revolutionary. When Romans 13 says to be subject to every governing authority instituted among men, bear in mind that the people who are doing these things are not themselves actually being subject to the governing authorities. They're subverting the rule of law and they are trying to carry out a revolution in this country by lawfare. Make no mistake about it. That is what is being attempted with these politically motivated prosecutions. It has to be stopped or it will get worse and worse until we are completely lost as a country. If you say, ah, you know what? My kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus said. Lest my children would fight. Don't oppose an evil man. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. All that's true. All that's good. Also, the same God didn't change his mind when he said, he's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Last I checked, Proverbs 31 is not just about the excellent woman, the excellent wife who can find. It's also about the sayings of King Lemuel's mother. She did not want her son to forget justice, but rather she told him, open your mouth for those who are destitute, those who are poor, the fatherless, the widow, those who are being trampled on and oppressed, those who do not have a voice and they are being persecuted. Open your mouth on their behalf. The same God gave us passages like Proverbs 31 to be instructed by them, to be made wise about these things. And also, oh, by the way, not for no reason did Jesus say, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. In other news, though, let's turn our attention away from presidential politics and let's turn our attention back to the church. Now, why I say that is because there are a lot of Christians who are very uncomfortable with talking about, reading about, thinking about, engaging in politics in the civil space. They kind of want to know who they should vote for, but they'll wait until the last minute. And so they really don't have a lot of information to go on. And unfortunately, that can make them very vulnerable to voting for bad people who want to do bad things as their representatives or not do good things as they promised to. If you are one of those kinds of Christians, or if you're not, either way, as Christians all alike, we should be concerned about how church is governed and how we are showing the broader world, the outside world. I think we should agree how we're showing the broader outside world, the way we govern, the way we make decisions together, the way we engage in church politics can either be a very good testimony or it could be a contributing factor to why the broader society thinks, yeah, this is fine. 
right? What we're doing is fine. This is just what it is. We are called to let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And for that matter, we're told in many different contexts, in many different places, to maintain a good reputation with outsiders. We are supposed to walk properly before outsiders. We're supposed to be sensitive to how somebody who is not a Christian, who might come into our church, is going to think of us. You can take that too far, but that's in both directions. Some take it too far in the direction of making everything revolve around what the outside world thinks of us, and some take it too far in the direction of not caring a lick because they say, ah, the outside world, those people, they don't have any judgment. They're going to hell anyways. I don't need to be concerned about what they think of me. No, actually, you know what? God says you do. God says you're supposed to provide an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. For that matter too, we're called to aspire to live a quiet life, minding our own affairs so that we can walk properly before outsiders. Paul says that to the church at Thessalonica. It's a good, honorable thing. He also says at one point in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, he says that if somebody who is not a believer comes into a church service and hears the believers talking a whole lot of nonsense or speaking strange things that they can't understand, they're going to think you have all lost your minds. That's what Paul says. They're going to think that you have all lost your minds. If they come in hearing you guys speaking in an unknown tongue, praying in the tongues of angels, whatever you want to call it, if they hear that, they're going to think you're crazy. And he says that as if we should actually care what those non-believers would think of us. Well, here's the thing. We are supposed to care. And that does not mean you will always win favor at all times. As much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably. Sometimes it will depend on you and you will find that you grow in favor in the eyes of those who are not believers. Other times you're going to be doing everything you should be and they're going to resent you and they're going to say all manner of evil against you for his name's sake. And still, at least you'll have a good conscience, right? You won't be left sitting there wondering, oh, was I being hated because I was doing the right thing or because I'm obnoxious, <laughs> because I'm a jerk, <laughs> You don't want to have those pesky thoughts keeping you up at night, giving you a bad conscience. Plus also, it's disobedient. But consider with me some reporting over at Not The Bee from Jeffrey Swindoll. Megachurch pastor provides user manual for interacting with him in case you want to climb his corporate ladder. Here we have in view Pastor Sam Picken of C3 Church in Toronto. And yes, indeed, this is a user manual. And it says this in the document that is screenshotted over at Not The Bee, user manual to Sam Picken. Some of the highlights, and I will quote here, Jeffrey Swindoll, probably not his real name. Leaked internal documents seem to show megachurch pastor Sam Picken of C3 Church in Toronto has a user manual for how staff should interact with him. This looks more like a mega corporation or mega cult. Swindoll writes, here's some direct quotes. Our leader, we work for Picken. I am here to serve my leader, so the key to my success in the organization is my ability to work in the way my leader wants me to, even if it's not my preference. This will go better if you understand how your leaders think. That's a direct quote from the user manual. To quote Jeffrey Swindoll at Not The Bee, 
The manual includes recommendations for various scenarios of interaction, such as how to present new ideas, how to disagree with Pickin, how to get promoted. If staff want to present new ideas, then they are not allowed to, quote, degrade what is already happening with the new idea, end quote. Rather, staff must, quote, not add any adjectives, end quote, when making a suggestion so as to allow the team, quote, to decide what kind of idea it is and avoid, quote, people being offended, end quote. Staff are also prohibited from publicly saying, quote, you're wrong to Picken. Instead, staff members are to present it privately and as a question rather than a statement. Quote, have you thought about rather than that's not right. Now, here's another gem from this manual, user manual. Quote, if the Lord is leading you to move away or leave the church, make a big life change, talk to me the first time you have this thought, not after you've already made up your mind. Never say, God told me. Say, this is what I feel. Ooh, wow. Okay. Are you getting a certain flavor here? I don't find this to be biblical. I I don't find this to be biblical. I don't find this in the scriptures. This is indefensible. This This is not okay. Right, This is not an okay way to relate to your fellow Christians if you are regarding your staff as co-laborers with you. This is not gracious. This is not kind. This is not humble. This is not loving. This is not respectful. This is egotistical, controlling, dangerous as an attitude being exhibited by somebody who is a high-profile pastor in a church in America. Continuing on, another quote from the user manual. File under phrases that don't need to be said. Quote, I'll do my best. If you feel the need to say that, you're probably leaving room to not do your best. If you actually did your best, it would be evident and you would not have to say so. Sorry, I'm late. If you have reasons for dropping the ball, they just sound like excuses. And giving excuses is pushing the blame off you. Maturity assumes responsibility. End quote. Now, let's just take a deep breath. And let's think about how we talk to people. If you're not Sam Pickin, and Sam Pickin, if you're listening, oh, buddy, oh, buddy. If you're not Sam Pickin, like I'm not Sam Pickin, you can't control what Sam Pickin does next. Sam Pickin can control what Sam Pickin does next. And what he should do is he should apologize and probably step down because this way of relating, this attitude is an unmitigated disaster. This is not okay. I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how many people you've got attending. I don't care how big your staff is. I don't care how big your church budget is. I don't care how many people live stream your services and download your podcast and buy your book. This is unacceptable. This is wicked. This is disobedient. This is not in keeping with the way that God's servant should relate to his fellow believers in particular or anybody at all. This is a problem. But if you're not Sam Picken, and I'm not Sam Picken, what do we do with it? I think part of what we do with this is we look at the tone, we look at the tenor, we look at the attitude of the heart, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We look at this way of relating, and we ask the hard question of, how am I coming across? How am I communicating to people? Am I sounding like this sometimes, anytime, with people that I seem to have some authority over? Am I talking to them in this presumptuous, controlling way? in this very emotionally abusive way, in this very harsh and loving way, if the answer for you or for me is yes, well, then we also really need 
to ask the Lord to do a work on our hearts. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If somebody's ministry model is predicated on disobedience to God, but hey, listen, it'll all pay off in the end. This person has authority. They're getting more and more authority and acclaim and attention, and they're drawing attention to the so-called gospel, but the way they're doing it is abusive, disobedient, sinful, wicked, and they not only know that, but they have aggressively attacked anybody who tried to warn them, who tried to talk with them. (sighs) Is God honored by that? I mean, really. There's a form of godliness, but that denies the power of godliness. That denies the power of godliness to treat people in an abusive, abrasive way. And oh, by the way, it's not all just the backwoods, small town, shotgun-toting, crazy preacher man, you might be thinking, who can be totally out of line, totally abusive. It can also be megachurch pastors at the hippest, trendiest, most forward-thinking, most innovative, most popular churches. It can be. Now, on the flip side, it's not necessarily a strike against a church that they do things excellently and well, and they are disciplined and effective, and they get a lot of attention. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Think of in the book of Acts. Early on, we have a sermon delivered after, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the believers in the upper room as tongues of fire, and they are able to speak in other tongues. And the people in Jerusalem marvel because everybody can hear in their own language what these men are saying as they're testifying to the goodness of God, the glory of God. They're testifying about Christ. Peter gets up and delivers a sermon, and 3,000 souls are added to the church. They go from 120 to 3,000. And don't tell me that that was proof of some kind of an illegitimacy about how the church got started. No, 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 no. If you see some major move of God and 3,000 souls come to Christ, praise God. That's great. And devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Is that what we're seeing here? And oh, by the way, I'll just say a quick word or two here. It says the apostles' teaching. Peter may have been the one who delivered the sermon. God is the one who provided the heart change. But it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they were meeting in one another's homes on a daily basis. They weren't fitting 3,000 new Christians into one person's home in one big building. And they weren't telecasting, live streaming to various campuses. No, no. This was that 120 believers who were gathered in the upper room, those disciples and the apostles spread out in homes across town around the city of Jerusalem, taking on as many as they could in little pockets and rotating through. And maybe that's part of the reason why they were meeting in one another's houses daily because, wow, we've got a lot of work to do. We have so much work to do to bring you all up to speed on what Jesus commanded and who Jesus is, that you would regard him as Lord and Messiah and Savior now. This is also, oh, by the way, can I just say, this is part of the reason why I get nervous when people give me advice about how to have a successful podcast. Not that it would be some terrible thing if I had a successful podcast, but I sense it creeping up every now and then when I look at the numbers or I look at 
how many people are subscribing or I look at, whether anybody is offering to be some big financial backer for me to do this. And I don't see anybody doing that, by the way. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, if you're out there and you'd like to be the first, you know, Garrett Ashley Mullet at protonmail.com. That's where you can email me. But on the other hand, there are a lot of times where I think, man alive, there are guys like this who clearly have a sizable budget if they have a staff large enough to write a user manual for Sam Picken. They have a pretty sizable budget if there are enough people on staff at this church, at this megachurch, C3 Church in Toronto, if there are enough people on staff that rather than have some individual personal conversations, he's just going to go right on to writing an instruction manual about how to talk to him. And just keep in mind, right, some of these attitudes are just terrible, right? Just terrible. And I've heard some variations on this in much smaller churches and actually not the too distant past. In recent weeks and months, I've been really mulling over some examples of pastors talking just like this in some Reformed churches up in Montana, for example. Don't question me. Don't disagree with me. You definitely don't disagree with me in front of other people. Don't ever tell me that I'm wrong. If you disagree, frame your disagreement in the form of a question which won't ever embarrass me or make me look like I wasn't telling the truth just then. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who do you think you are, guy? (laughs) Help you. (laughs) This is not biblical. This is not obedient. This is not a close study of the pattern of Paul and Peter and the other apostles. This is actually quite contrary, quite opposite how they engaged. Think of Paul confronting Peter to his face at Antioch, and nothing indicates from that story, that incident, that anecdote, that it was something that wrecked the church. In fact, we read about it in the New Testament precisely because it's good for the church to see that Paul confronted Peter about how he was undermining the gospel and the way he was showing partiality towards the Judaizers and against the Gentiles. It's good for 2,000 years of Christians before us and us now today to still be pondering the implications of Paul confronting and rebuking Peter in front of everybody. We're still reading about it. You say, oh, well, that's just local church business. That shouldn't be public knowledge. We shouldn't all be talking about that. Yeah, you know, last I checked, there's no magic phrase that keeps non-Christians from being able to read that business in Galatians or in the book of Acts that deals with this incident. Christians, non-Christians, all alike get to read about Paul rebuking Peter in front of everybody. This is the Peter, right? This is the Peter who preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, which resulted in, not caused, by the way, but it resulted in or directly preceded 3,000 souls coming to faith in Christ and joining the church. That guy, right? The guy who preaches the sermon where 3,000 come to believe. That guy got rebuked in front of everybody because he started to stray from the gospel message. Even on something as simple as not being willing to associate with the Gentile believers because they hadn't been circumcised, because there was some controversy over whether they should be required to obey 
the Mosaic law in addition to their faith in Jesus. This is not no big deal. This is a huge deal. And if we don't get it right, we actually contribute to civil society, the lost world around us in our country, getting worse and worse. We become salt that has lost its savor when we don't stand up to this kind of bad behavior, these kinds of bad attitudes, and rebuke them similarly to how Paul rebuked Peter. Now, obviously, there should be a bit of a check on that. You don't want to be disrespectful to those who are in positions of authority, but then how we define what is respectful and how we address bad behavior. All of these things are important all at the same time, not some of these things being important and others not so important. It's in Paul's letter to Timothy that we see you don't admit a charge against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so if you think you've seen something that is misbehavior, a bad attitude, untoward behavior, you think you're a witness to that, before you can admit a charge, that is to say you're bringing this before the whole church and you're confronting bad behavior, there needs to be the testimony of two or three witnesses in order for that to be in order. But that's what Paul says to Timothy. He doesn't say no charge should be admitted against an elder. Full stop. Here we should understand elder is interchangeable. In 1 Timothy 5, the word, at least in verses 17 19, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the word is presbuteros, an old man, or someone with dignity, rank, office, someone who rules, someone who has authority in the church. Don't bring a charge against an elder, someone who's a ruler of the people, except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But Paul does not say, don't admit a charge against an elder, period, full stop. He says, don't admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And here we understand a charge has to do with sin. But consider Ezekiel chapter 34. Also, to temper your way of thinking about these things, and really even just to get the mind of God. Perhaps in cases where it's not clear you should say anything, you should do anything, you're still trying to figure it out, you're still trying to figure out what's God's mind about this, Ezekiel chapter 34. If I read the whole chapter for you, I think you will have a sobering and perhaps even reaffirming, reassuring, encouraging counterbalance to some who let their authority go to their heads and they get carried away and they abuse their position. Starting in verse 1, the word of Yahweh came to me, Ezekiel writes, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey 
and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall be no more a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Now, let's stop. And consider that sometimes men who are in positions of authority in all of the places where there is a legitimate need for authority and God has instituted positions of authority in the home, in the church, in civil society, all of these places, sometimes the men who are in positions of authority or who claim to be in positions of authority abuse the people who are supposed to be looking to them for protection. And sometimes the people who are in positions of authority reward those who do what is evil, even though they're supposed to be restraining evil with the authority that they have. 
And when that happens, sometimes it is very difficult or even impossible for us to dislodge them, to object even, because all of the evil that they're willing to do, they will do to us if we even just dare to dissent with something they've said or something they're doing. But all things are possible with God. And God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And this is true in all spheres of authority, but then at the same time as well, it's not just that God will do justice, rewarding himself, those who do what is good, and punishing himself, those who do what is evil, restraining evil himself, and blessing what is good. It's also the case that God has compassion for his people when they are oppressed. He himself, being our shepherd, is phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's extraordinarily encouraging and comforting. Here we have a provisional aspect and we have a protective aspect. Don't forget it. If we will remember it, it can give us peace and help us to endure, give us a boldness when we need to be bold, help us to have wisdom when we need wisdom, when we lack wisdom, when we ask God for wisdom, knowing that he will give generously to all without finding fault. We can endure when we must endure those who are arrogant or unjust or corrupt and yet lay some claim to having authority to wield over us. And even those who do wield legitimate authority have compassion on some when they err because they are human. And be patient with them and be respectful and pray for them. Maybe they're wayward here and there because of their own human frailty. Maybe they don't know any better. Maybe someone set a bad example for them and they follow that bad example because they were told that was the way you do it. Have compassion on them, pray for them, trust in God. That's part of how you guard your heart when you're a person under authority. And we all need to be under authority. And yes, even when we are under authority that is cruel or oppressive, misbehaving, doing what is corrupt, that too can work to our good because all things are worked to the good by God for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes the point of someone being in a position of authority is to test our faith and to give us the material on which to try our virtue and develop our own virtue and to represent God and to show that we must obey God rather than men when we can't do both. So in conclusion, in summary, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in men who are in authority. Pray for them. Do pray for them, whether they know the Lord, whether they claim to know the Lord, or if none of the above. Pray for them so that we can live in peace. Where you can, be respectful, be supportive. And when you can't, still be respectful as you respectfully say, we must obey God rather than men. If that's what it boils down to at the end of the day, do that and there will be a good end. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.